Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to the author of State Capture, How Conservative Activists, Big Businesses, and Wealthy Donors Reshaped the American States and the Nation. The book is published by Oxford University Press, and the author, uh, who should be familiar to listeners of the podcast, is Alexander Hertel Fernandez. Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on, Heath. I'm looking forward to talking about the book. Yeah, you had uh, been on, uh, I don't know if it's under a calendar, uh, uh, in the calendar year since we're just starting, but uh, last year you came on with a different book. Uh, would you just remind us what, what the kind of the, the title and, and uh, essential point of the previous book you, you wrote? Sure thing. So when I was last on the podcast, I was talking about my book, Politics at Work, How Companies Turn Their Workers into Lobbyists, also published with Oxford University Press last year. And that book laid out how American private sector businesses are increasingly viewing their employees as a political resource to change politics and policy. For instance, reminding their workers to vote in elections or encouraging them to contact their elected officials to pass policies that that companies want. Yeah, the book was so interesting, and somehow you have managed to um, uh, write an even more interesting book uh, this time uh, with a long title and and lots of uh, analysis in it. Uh, the title of the book, and it, again, is, is State Capture. And you're, in your new book, um, you study what you describe as the troika. Uh, to get us started today, uh, I wonder if you can talk uh, a little bit about who are part of the troika and, and uh, what is maybe the sort of the briefest of descriptions of, of their histories. Sure. And I should say at the outset that I started this project as part of my dissertation in graduate school well before the Russian affair that enveloped the 2016 election and the Trump presidency. So I think if I had known about that, I might have chosen a different different word to describe the trio of organizations that I write about in the book. But the Troika uh, focuses on cross-state conservative networks, alliances between businesses, private sector businesses, conservative activists, wealthy donors, and elected officials that are trying to reshape policy and politics in each state, but operating across multiple states at the same time. And these include groups like the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, that some of your listeners may be familiar with, that's been operating since the 1970s to create model bills and encourage state elected officials to introduce those bills. It also includes the State Policy Network, which is a network of think tanks that lean to the right. They're conservative, uh, pro-business think tanks that put out research and media commentary in support of many of the same ideas that ALEC promotes. And most recently, the Troika can now count on Americans for Prosperity, which is a federated advocacy group 
that is at the center of the political network run by Charles and David Koch. And it includes grassroots activists, as well as a hefty campaign war chest that Americans for Prosperity uses to promote many of the same policies that ALEC and the state policy network are also pushing. Now, you look at, at the range of, of policy issues that these groups focus on individually, but also in some coordinated fashion. I wonder how that agenda breaks down by, by policy area. Uh, you know, are these groups primarily focused on the things that we might first assume, like guns and, and uh, voter ID laws, or are there other issues that dominate their agendas? That balance of interests has changed over time within the Troika, and there are some groups like ALEC that have been historically more focused on social issues like guns, gay rights, the Equal Rights Amendment, for instance, whereas other members of the Troika, and especially Americans for Prosperity, tend to focus with much more laser-like focus on economic regulatory issues. The common agenda that all three members of the Troika push on, however, are cuts to government regulation and spending, and particularly weakening labor unions, especially in the public sector. Now, I think what most uh, might assume about these groups, especially ALEC, uh, is, is sort of that they are all-knowing and, and all-powerful. Uh, I think from a distance, this is what we would assume. And uh, but but you describe in the book a, a somewhat more complicated evolution uh, filled with many missteps. I wonder if you could describe uh, this process, uh, which you describe in the book, as, as a process of learning. Um, for Alec, uh, for one, and, and maybe the, the, the Troika more generally, what did they learn and how have they evolved from the 1970s to the more recent time period? I'm glad you pointed that out, Heath, because I do hope that that's a lesson that emerges from this book. I think there's been some great reporting by journalists, investigative reporters, and some other academics on these organizations like ALEC. But I think what a lot of that existing work tends to miss is just how tenuous this organization was at various points over time. I think there's an assumption to look at a group like ALEC and to say, well, it's successful today. It must have always been successful and always had an easy time bringing together these businesses, these donors, these activists. But I think it's a real mistake to read history backwards, so to speak, and assume that this organization has always been successful. And in unearthing new archival material about ALEC and the other members of the Troika, I found that there were a lot of moments when the organization could have gone under. It, it almost went bankrupt several times. It had trouble attracting new members, especially businesses. And it was only over time that it was able to learn from some of the mistakes that it made in order to put into place a strategy that would bring it to the success that it enjoys today. And I'll just give you one example of that. So in its early years, Alec didn't do much to differentiate itself from the other conservative groups that were cropping up in the 1970s and 80s. And so businesses didn't have a, a good reason to prioritize membership in ALEC as opposed to, say, the other conservative groups that they were financing or the other trade groups that they were participating in, like the Chamber of Commerce. It was only after ALEC realized that it could have a real comparative advantage in connecting businesses and activists with state legislatures across the country that it was able to attract a substantial amount of membership. It had to sort of prove that they, there were benefits to joining ALEC that members couldn't get elsewhere. Now, the other thing that I think some might assume is a near total partisan alliance with the Republican Party. 
to what extent is this assumption right? And and are there situations where where Democrats and, and Democratic Party participate in and also benefit from the work of the Troika? That's a great question. And it points at how the relationship between the Republican Party and the Troika has changed over time as the party system in the United States has changed as well. In Alex's early years in the 70s, 80s, uh, and even the 1990s, um, Alec could count on bipartisan support from a lot of conservative Democrats, especially in the South. And indeed, interviews I conducted with some of Alec's early staff emphasized that this was a priority for them. They wanted to attract members from both parties, so they weren't fully co-opted within the Republican Party. But of course, as partisan sorting proceeded and the parties began to polarize more intensely, it became harder to find Democrats uh, to get on board with their agenda. And they became even more closely aligned with especially the conservative elements of the Republican Party. And I think the relationship flows in both directions. An argument that I make in the book is that Alec wasn't just helping lawmakers introduce ideas that they would have introduced otherwise. It was helping conservative pro-business lawmakers understand what a conservative pro-business legislative agenda should look like. And that's because many elected officials in state government you know, don't have a strong sense of what are the specific measures that they should be pushing. So over time, Alec and the other members of the Troika, I think, have contributed to the process of partisan polarization that we've seen, particularly in the Republican Party, as Republican elected officials have become more ideologically conservative in their positions. Now, what these groups seek on some basic level is, is influence over public policy, and, and that is primarily at the state level. It's one of the things that makes your book very unique and also different than, than I think people would typically associate this kind of sort of uh, uh, policy coordination. You have a, a novel method to investigate whether Alec, uh, for one, has been successful in getting these, these so-called model bills uh, adopted. I wonder if you could describe the, this massive data set that you put together and, and how it allowed you to test this theory of what you call policy plagiarism. Yeah, so that was a fun part, a fun but time-consuming part of the book. Uh, and in many ways, while Alex's use of model bills might be worrisome from our perspective of democratic representation, the fact that some lawmakers are simply just cutting and pasting legislation without their constituents knowing from an outside interest group, it makes it uh, relatively easier to detect the influence of ALEC in state legislatures as compared to other interest groups. And that's good for me as, as a researcher. So when I discovered this, I partnered with a graduate school colleague of mine, Constantine Cashin, who's an expert political methodologist. And together we developed methods of text reuse detection, trying to figure out methods that were automated of detecting instances where lawmakers copied and pasted text from these ALEC model bills. And so to do that, we had to assemble both a collection of all of the ALEC model bills we could get our hands on, as well as all of the state legislation that had been introduced and enacted over many decades. And assembling both of those data sets was quite time consuming. To get the data set of ALEC model bills, we relied on some great muckraking journalism by the Center for Media and Democracy in Madison, 
that received a leak of ALEC model bills that we that we digitized and that we relied on. But I also went on a road trip across the country to visit a number of state legislative libraries to collect ALEC model bills that state lawmakers had uh, assembled over time. We digitized those, turned those into machine-readable documents, and to assemble the database of all state legislation, which included several million bills that were either introduced or enacted from the 1990s to 2013, we needed to um, collect and digitize a number of disparate state legislative records, uh, and that was also a very time-consuming task. But together, with those two data sets in hand, we were able to produce measures of this policy plagiarism score that looks at where lawmakers relied on ALEC for drafting their legislation. And the way I like to think about it um, and the way I explain the theory behind this in the book is that facing down uh, tight deadlines and without a lot of help or expertise, it turns out state lawmakers act a lot like undergraduates uh, who are racing to finish uh, written assignments before the end of the semester and all all too frequently turn to uh, plagiarism to get the job done. So, so in in doing this, did were you surprised by the magnitude of of this uh, level of plagiarism? Is it what you expected? Uh, was it more or was it less? How do you how could you either quantify or, or qualify the, the sort of the size of this phenomenon? Does it happen a lot, or is it somewhat more rare? So hundreds of bills each year um, at its peak when we are studying this text reuse across the states. At, at its peak, hundreds of bills uh, came from ALEC model bills according to the text reuse detection that we that we employed. And um, even more than that, um, at its peak, thousands of bills were, were introduced from, uh, from ALEC model legislation. And that number initially took me by surprise, but it made more sense the more I did interviews with state lawmakers uh, and talked to them about the constraints that they face. In many states, lawmakers don't have very much in the way of professional staff, full-time staffers that can help them do research and put together a legislation. In many states, lawmakers aren't paid enough for this to be their only job, so they have other full-time jobs or even second jobs to maintain enough income. And in many states, legislative sessions are quite short, and they don't meet for the whole year. And in some states, they don't even meet every year. And so faced with those constraints, if lawmakers can get bill ideas, bill help, research assistance from an outside interest group, that can be a really powerful, powerful way of influencing the sort of policies that they put forward. And that's exactly what I find in the analysis for the book. It tended to be states that had fewer staffers, that paid lawmakers less, and that had shorter sessions that were more likely to plagiarize from ALEC model bill ideas. And within legislatures, it tended to be lawmakers who were more junior and had fewer staffers who relied most heavily on the ALEC model bills. Now, later in the book, you talk about what you call the IKEA model of conservative policy advocacy. Uh, this shifts from from ALEC to, uh, to SPN. Uh, how does this work, and and what's novel about this approach? So I have to say that um, as felicitous as that phrasing is, it's not mine. It's it actually comes from the State Policy Network's president Tracy Sharp. She was giving a speech at a conference of State Policy Network think tank affiliates. To remind your listeners, this is the network of right leaning pro business think tanks that operate in in each state. And the way the the State Policy Network works is ostensibly 
these think tanks are independent. They are run by their own staffs. They fundraise on their own, uh, but they're part of this network that gives them uh, an agenda to pursue and oftentimes uses grants to steer the affiliates towards pursuing particular policy objectives. So for instance, after it became clear that uh, states could opt out of the Medicaid expansion that was part of the Affordable Care Act, uh, after a Supreme Court ruling in 2012, the state policy network went into overdrive and created a system of grants to help affiliates push back against Medicaid expansion in their states by conducting polling, by testifying in front of the legislature, and by producing research uh, suggesting that Medicaid expansion would be a bad economic deal for the states. And so in this way, the affiliates get sort of the best of both worlds. They can claim that they're independent think tanks that produce research that's tailored for their particular state, but they're part of this national network that's giving them an agenda and the resources to pursue a coordinated approach across many states at once. Now, the group we haven't talked about that much yet is Americans for Prosperity. It's not because it's the small one of the Troika. Uh, so while Alec is writing model legislation and, and uh, the state policy network is researching these policies, what is AFP up to? So Americans for Prosperity, as you rightly pointed out, is in many ways the elephant of the Troika at this point. It was formed in 2004 out of the remains of an older organization that Charles and David Koch had founded and were involved in, and by now encompasses something that almost looks like a political party. Indeed, the Washington Post described it a few years ago as America's third biggest political party that you've never heard of. Um, and I think that's an accurate characterization in some ways, because like a political party, it's it's federated. It has a national office, regional offices, state offices, local offices, and like a political party, it has grassroots supporters. It has, at last count, some three million grassroots supporters that stand ready to canvas, uh, to get voters out on election day, to call state legislatures, governors, uh, members of Congress to push for legislation, and to participate in rallies and protests. But unlike a political party, there's no measure of democratic representation. It's all run from the top, from their national headquarters. And that national headquarters has a deep campaign war chest of several hundred millions of dollars that it can use to strategically deploy resources across the states to run ads, to make campaign contributions, and to put pressure on state governments and on members of Congress. And as I show in the book, in many important state battles over things like Medicaid expansion, environmental regulation, or cutbacks to union rights, Americans for Prosperity is providing the grassroots outside heft that uh, buttresses Alex's efforts inside of state legislatures and the state policy networks work inside of state legislatures. Yeah, there's there's so much more in this book, so much more that we can't even talk about uh, given our time. But but I wanted to wrap up a little bit by talking about where this troika sits today. Um, where where are they uh, in respect to the the Trump administration and the Trump era? Uh, sort of in in general terms, uh, where have have they their interests been advanced? Have they evolved further to take um, advantage of the, the the changing but but um, uh, still significant sort of conservative policy ascent? Where are they in in Trump's America? 
That's an interesting question. Um, uh, as has been widely reported, some key figures in the Troika, like Charles and David Koch themselves, you know, by all accounts, personally dislike Trump. Um, and that is also true for many leaders within these organizations. But they've been more than happy to make their peace with the Trump administration um, and ha- the Koch political network and Americans for Prosperity has sent many of its top staffers to work in the White House and other key regulatory executive agencies. For instance, the Labor Department and the Environmental Protection Agency. In addition, they've been more than happy to plug away while the Trump administration is floundering in Washington on state level activities that they think will ultimately have bigger payoffs for the conservative movement over the long run. So, for instance, Americans for Prosperity and the State Policy Network and ALEC have all pursued an aggressive agenda of pushing back against public sector labor unions with the thinking that that will ultimately help Republicans win elected office after Trump, um, both in Congress, in the presidency, and in state legislatures. Uh, And in research I summarize in the book, I find that 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 hunch is right in places where the Troika has been more successful in pushing back against labor unions. Democrats have struggled to win elected office, uh, and that goes for 2016 as well as the more recent 2018 midterm elections. Yeah, the the book, the really, really fascinating book uh, is again called State Capture, How Conservative Activists, Big Businesses, and Wealthy Donors Reshaped the American States and the Nation. The author who you've been hearing from is Alexander Hertel Fernandez. Alex, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me on, Heath.